Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. So on this episode, it's Sam Soholt and we talk a lot about a lot of things, conservation and other things like that. And I just, uh, we'll get into that episode, but I wanted to put out a little statement saying I apologize for missing an episode last week. I was on an eternal quest to find some toilet paper during this COVID crisis. No, I'm just kidding. I had some things going on, and by the time I was going to put out an episode, it was the middle of the week, and uh, I just decided to put it out on the normal time on uh, Sundays. So I apologize for that. I'll try not to let it happen again, and here's the episode. Okay, I'm talking to Sam Soholt, and uh, Sam, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, um, Sam Soholt here, um, probably most, I guess, well-known for my photography and uh, public land advocacy work, uh, driving around in a public land school bus and raising awareness about public land issues and uh, just trying to <clears throat> get people involved. And of course, my dog has uh, got a squeaky toy over here. That's perfectly fine. We keep it real. <laughs> okay, good. Yep. <laughs> yep. Most of the time, he's pretty uh, chill. He's napping on the couch, but... Uh, apparently me talking on the computer, he wants to be part of it. Understand. So did you, uh, take him with you when you went to Pheasant Fest over the weekend? I did not. Nope. I did not. He, uh, stayed home, uh, with, uh, in-laws actually, cause my wife came down to the cities as well and hung out with me at Pheasant Fest and, uh, yeah, just, he stayed back. So how is it being a newlywed? Everything's still good? good. <laughs> yeah, no, everything's good. It's, uh, even better than before. We actually have a place and uh um it's the first time i've had a permanent home since 2014 uh so it's kind of nice to have a 
nice to have a home ba- base and place to put all my gear and resort and pack right. up and uh, have a place to actually go back to. Yeah, that's, that's a good feeling. It's definitely yeah. a good feeling. So I want to ask you, how, how did you grow up, man? Were, were you like a, you know, pretty big into hunting as a kid or how, how did that go? Yeah, I mean, I was pretty much born into it. Uh, my dad was uh, avid sportsman, and uh, before we came along, he was really into archery hunting and did a lot of it. He grew up in Wisconsin and started archery hunting a lot, and then um, lived in North Dakota for a while and chased ducks a lot while he was in college. And then the, him and my uh, mom moved out to Montana, where he was uh, archery hunted deer and elk a lot, and just um, yeah, he was he was really into it, and then. When we were all born, uh, all three of us, I've got an older brother and a younger sister, he kind of gave up the archery thing. But as soon as any of us were old enough to walk, we were basically following him around in pheasant fields. And um, yeah, started in the upland side of things when we were really little. I think he just wanted to have an activity where we could all be together. And then uh, when my brother was, I'm trying to think how old he was, 14, 15. Um, he got invited to go on a youth duck hunt with some neighbors and, uh, that was it. We were off and running in the waterfowl world and, uh, basically lived and breathed waterfowling until I was 24, um, to the point of having 30 dozen floating mallard decoys and a whole pile of goose decoys. And, um, I think at one point we had like nine or 10 duck boats, um, ranging from little canoes all the way up to 16 foot, you know, boats with blinds and everything. So, uh, yeah, I was raised in a hunting family for sure. So did you ever even deer hunt before then, or was it just something that, I mean, kind of on the back burner because of the duck hunting or. Yeah, it was definitely on the back burner. We had, a um, a cousin had some family land in the center part of South Dakota and it was like every three years or so we would apply or, or have a point you know, a preference point, And then we would apply and, and go rifle hunt. Uh, I think I did a, two rifle hunts growing up when, uh, uh, yeah, on that family land, but it was never like a focus. It was, uh, just something that we did when we couldn't go duck hunting anymore. <laughs> and, uh, and then, uh, my older brother chose college just cause he wanted to learn how to elk hunt. And he kept telling me, you know, like you need to get a bow, you need to start archery hunting, you need to, you know, and at this point I was going to school at North Dakota state and I was duck hunting three to four days a week, uh, all fall and was still just like completely engrossed in the waterfowl world. And, uh, I went out, uh, the fall of 2009 and filmed him and his buddy on an elk hunt and, uh, basically drove back to Fargo and bought a bow the day after I got home. So I was, uh, got into the archery thing and started archery hunting the next fall and then uh was off and running in that i have a, i think there's probably something wrong with me i have a hard time like just dipping my toe in anything like if i start something and really like it i'm going i've got the same problem i hear that from everybody you don't just do something half-ass you go all the way don't you that's right <laughs> yep but so where, where'd you grow up then was it like in south dakota or or yep. um, yeah Yep. Okay. Yep. Grew up in South Dakota. I uh, was born in Aberdeen and then uh, grew up in Sioux Falls. And yeah, and then. That's actually kind of the duck hunting mecca, though. I mean, it's a sportsman's paradise as far as all that kind of stuff goes, right? I mean, it, it really is. Yeah, it's a it's a cool state and there's a lot of opportunity, not only for residents, but for non-residents. Um, I think the coolest thing that they do 
is they have, uh, for the waterfowl side of things, is they actually have a draw for a waterfowl tag. And unlike most other states where you can buy an over-the-counter license, uh, you have to put in for it in order to go, and they have a limited number of licenses. It's a lot of licenses. There's almost a guaranteed draw, but it's nice that they kind of protect the quality of the hunt for anybody who's either lives there or is coming to the state to hunt. So let's, I'm kind of curious about how you got started on the whole public land thing, Sam. Was it mm-hmm. was it there a moment in your life that just kind of solidified the fact that, you know, these public lands are precious and are important? Or was it just kind of you grew up around it and you knew it and you moved somewhere else? What was the deal that really brought it to light for you? Yeah, you know, I grew up, uh, like looking back on it, I grew up hunting almost, I wouldn't say exclusively, but I would say it was... Uh, a higher percentage of public land than private land. You know, we would knock on doors and stuff and chase ducks, but for the most part, we were hunting, uh, you know, walking areas or waterfowl production areas or state game production areas. Um, But growing up selfishly, I had no idea how the public land system worked. And you just kind of take it for granted. You know, you just see it as this place that is open to hunting. And you, like, I always just believe that that would always be there. And so... After I moved west and, and uh, you know, it really opened my eyes to how much public land there was like out in the mountains, you know, like endless acres of national forest and wilderness area. And um, when all of the talk surrounding public land transfer legislation was happening, you know, in the basically an election year in 2016, it really caught my attention. And I started doing a little more research on what that meant. And it just something struck a chord with me. And like deep down, I couldn't just kind of let that go by and just kind of see what happened. It was uh, pretty early on in all of that, like learning about all that stuff that I felt like I needed to do something bigger <clears throat> and be a bigger voice in the message and, you know, at the very least speak up and, and try to get other people involved. Right. So um, that's kind of how it happened kind of for me. You know, I, I never grew up with a whole lot of public land around me. There was obviously some, I didn't hunt much of it. Most of the people I knew hunted private. And up until recently, I just started hunting public land. And then what solidified it for me was definitely going out West and just seeing the massive amounts of just untapped beauty that you, it's it's yours. I mean, anybody can go out with the right application or whatever and apply for a tag and get that. (laughs) And, uh, you know, that's kind of what did it for me, but I'm kind of curious. I didn't get to go to pheasant fest, you know, finite days of vacation and whatnot. And obviously I want to save them for hunting rather than Mm -hmm. a bunch of trade shows and stuff, but what'd you kind of talk about there? Yeah. So pheasant fest was a blast. Um, uh, the, the organization reached out to me last summer and asked if I would be willing to bring the bus down to pheasant fest and, and park in the the new public lands pavilion that they set up down there and and then be a voice on the stage. So it was really cool because the uh, uh, all of us that were in that public lands pavilion, we signed a contract that whatever revenue we brought in during the show, uh, a, a 10 per, at least 10% of that would go back to Pheasants Forever for their Build a Wildlife Area campaign, which if uh, anybody listening is unfamiliar with that, what Pheasants Forever does is They take donations and they put them into a pot and then through they leverage that and they're able to match donations from um, other either other organizations or state agencies or um, other donors. And they basically turn 
let's call it, you know, $20,000 into $100,000. And uh, they are able to, you know, that's just an example, but they're able to purchase chunks of private land and then replant and manage the land and turn it over to the state agencies as an open public hunting area. So during that whole event, as always, $5 from every item we sold will go directly to um, a conservation group. And at this event, everything's going to pheasants forever. So, um, but yeah, they were, uh, you know, gave me an hour a day on the stage and uh, I was just able to talk about growing up and, um, you know, my experiences growing up in hunting public land and then what we've done with the bus and uh, how much money we've raised uh, for conservation groups and and through different initiatives and then kind of what we've got going into the future. Um, but it was, it was cool just to be able to tell that story, uh, kind of in person to, uh, Friday was a small group. Saturday was a, a little bit bigger group. And then Sunday was pretty low key, but it was fun to, to just really have uh, in-depth conversations with people right in front of you about all that stuff. No, that's awesome. That's an awesome thing to do too. I mean, anytime anybody gets to be part of something like that, it's pretty special. Mm-hmm. So your stamp it forward project. I'm just curious. Sure. I mean, I get the concept of it. I've kind of always mm-hmm. knew that. Well, actually, I didn't know it until I started buying a waterfall stamp, right? But then sure. I was aware of it. But how did you come up with that? Yeah, I was just looking at all of the things, you know, the way conservation is funded and, you know, through things like Pittman Robertson Act and uh, licenses and tags, obviously, um, and then all of the work that conservation organizations do. But one of the best tools that the country has is the duck stamp program. And if your listeners don't already know, um, Duck Stamp was basically founded in 1934. Um, Ding Darling was the artist that drew the first stamp, and it was a dollar back then. But when they proposed the stamp, uh, they put into law that by law, 98% of the money raised from the Duck Stamp has to go directly to things like purchasing more wetlands or preserving more wetlands or... uh, improving wetland habitat, which uh, not only set up the national refuge system, but it has done basically saved migratory bird species and then is a positive and beneficial thing for over 700 other species of animal simply due to purchasing more wetlands. So that's kind of how the duck stamp works. And uh, I don't remember the figure, but typically about a million and a half duck stamps are sold every year. So you're looking at, you know, upwards of $40 million um, or more is generated per year just through the sale of duck stamps and waterfowl hunters having to buy a duck stamp. So after looking at this tool, I, the original concept was how do we just get people to talk about um, the duck stamp and what it means and, and buy, like figure out a way to have quote unquote influencers or people within the hunting space, talk more about the duck stamp and get like, encourage people to go out and buy either additional duck stamps or if they don't duck hunt at all, to buy their first one. And that would have been great, but I just couldn't figure out a way to like tally the impact um, that that would have had. And so rather than do that, I decided that we should figure out a way to just have all of the money funneled directly through me. And with every penny that we raised, I would go out and buy an additional duck stamp. And so uh, we bought the initial hundred. And so it took $2,500 out of our donation account. 
and went to post offices and I bought the initial hundred stamps. Um, and then, uh, put out a video that said, basically, if you would like to make a direct donation to conservation, send me money through PayPal and Venmo. And, uh, every penny that we brought in, we went out and bought more duck stamps. And then on top of that, uh, there were five companies that jumped in and each bought an additional hundred stamps. And so overall, um, by the time it was all said and done in early December, um, we had bought just over a thousand duck stamps. So raising $25,000, um, for conservation. I'm wondering how many actually, cause I know it was a lot. I mean, your movement, the whole stamp it forward movement really took off. I ended up with three duck stamps. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I bought yep. one for myself. I bought an extra one to give to a buddy that maybe didn't have the money at the time to get mm -hmm. a stamp this year. And then I ended up buying the shirt, you know, so yep, support exactly. the public lands, yep. got the third yeah. one. And I'm like, holy crap. But you know what? That's cool because it's always one of those things. They, the first thing they do is make you sign that stamp. Right. And then, so you're trashing it and I really like to hold on to them. So a lot of times I probably shouldn't be saying this, but I wouldn't sign it so that right. I could have, have the stamp and collect it. <clears throat> Keep you know? it at the end of the year. But yeah. now, I mean, you really got me thinking, well, what the heck? Why not just buy two stamps, keep one mm -hmm. in the book and then use the other one. And so I kind of started do going along that route now, or at least I will from this point on. And I sure. think that's really awesome. And I'm kind of curious just to see, though, the amount of numbers as far as total purchases this year and how much you may have just affected that. Yeah, I'm really curious, too, because obviously, um, you know, we bought a thousand and there were some people that bought their duck stamp through us. Basically, you know, they ordered a shirt. And, um, yeah. And that's the other thing we did is on top of buying the thousand, you just said that you bought a shirt, but we were able to leverage um, those stamps into an additional fundraiser and gave them away through our website. And so not only did people get a stamp, but they basically donated another $5 to conservation and we were able to raise close to another $5,000 for, uh, for conservation. So, um, but yeah, I, you know, like it was cool that through that whole thing, um, I kept getting tagged in people where they hadn't bought anything from us, but they had donated to the cause and then they went out and they bought two or three stamps themselves. And so, you know, I would say conservatively, I would say it was even double what we did. I would say, you know, it probably impacted it close to an additional thousand stamps overall. Um, so, you know, 50,000, but the goal for 2020 is to is to multiply all that by 10 and we're shooting to buy 10,000 duck stamps in 2020. That's awesome. That's really cool. That's awesome. So I got another question for you and it's kind of one that, I mean, just where do all these ideas truly come from? I mean, they're pretty creative. Is there like a, just a motivation behind it, a source behind it? I mean, you got some pretty cool ideas that the boss, everything, you know? <laughs> uh, you know, I think just, that's a, that's a really good question. I, um, you should, you should, uh, I wish I had written down all the ideas that don't make it to the top of the pile. So <laughs> it's, you know, it's, <clears throat> I like to think that, uh, I, you know, just from living the freelance life and, and, and having to get creative in ways to, you know, make money and make a, make a living for myself doing, doing what I love to do. I think it just taps into that part of your brain where you start to think, in different ways. And, um, you know, I've never worked in a conservation organization. I've never, you know, I've given money to them. Um, but I think not going down that path allows me to 
maybe think of business ideas and ways to generate money that, you know, people that work in organizations, you know, like it's been done this way for so long, like it allows us to, we can kind of come up with whatever we want because we're not tied to any one system. And so I think that really truly allows us to be creative in the ways that we're generating dollars for conservation. And um, yeah, you know, you just pick one that seems the best and go for it. <laughs> See if it works. I mean, did, right. you, did you ever think that they'd become as big as they have? I mean, especially like the public land bus. I mean, that's that's an icon now. It'll always be forever remembered as the public land bus. Yeah, you know, uh, no, I didn't think it would be <laughs> as big as it has become, you know, and, and obviously that was always the goal, you know, and you, you really just got to you, you go for it and you shoot for, you know, like shoot for as high as you can go. And hopefully you land somewhere right in the middle um, at, you know, at the worst. Um, but I think the bus was something that every single person could relate to, you know, like almost everybody at some point or another in their life rode on a school bus and to see it changed into something as, you know, comfortable and quote unquote cozy as like a little rolling hunting lodge, uh, something with a bigger purpose. I think it really struck a chord with people and they were able to kind of think back on memories of childhood or whatever, it just kind of brought like a, a nostalgia to the whole thing, uh, using the bus as a vehicle rather than anything else. Um, but no, I didn't think it would take off like it did. And I'm just happy it did. And it allows us to, you know, leverage the, uh, you know, like just the acknowledgement of the bus. It just allows us to leverage that into more dollars for protecting places that we all love to use. What do you think the future plans for the bus are? I mean, is there anything in the future for that? You know, the bus is going to become more of an event rig. It's a, you know, a centerpiece for everything else that we're trying to do. Um, it's not a super efficient vehicle to drive around. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so, it, yeah, it's, it'll be more of an event rig, just a way to, to bring people in and start that conversation, explain like who we are as an organization at Public Land Tees and, and uh, um, kind of what the whole mission is. But, yeah, it's why we're doing things like moving towards, you know, transitioning into the van project, which is a way for us to have basically a mini bus and uh, a four wheel drive version of a mini bus. Yeah. And, you know, we get to talk about doing the build out on that. So it kind of, it'll relate to everybody who's like dream of like this ultimate hunting rig. And then at the same time, we get to continue to talk about how important public lands and conservation is um, at, you know, while having an absolute blast roaming around the country in a four by four van. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that. Yeah. That's the next big project. And then uh, who knows from there, you know, like, I think both my brother and I who run public land tees together, I think our ultimate dream would just be to build uh, cool hunting rigs and, and talk about them and leverage those into ways to raise money for, you know, protecting public lands. And um, yeah, I think that's the I think that's the next step is just continuing kind of down this path that we've kind of like not really try to start but started anyway um of uh being really like just giant six-year-olds that <laughs> just <laughs> dream up things and then have the means to build them no that's awesome i i got caught one day on a wormhole that ended up being like 
five hours later YouTubing and Instagram mm -hmm. looking at pictures of different hunt rigs and different things. And it's like, holy cow, you could really get lost in all that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got like it started. I think it started. I was looking at those Kimbo living campers or whatever they are that in the back because me and my buddy were talking about making something similar to that. And then sure. it just and then next thing you know, I was looking at vans and all kinds of stuff. And I mean, there's some stuff that they build in Russia that is just like insane. <laughs> Yeah, all the Unimog stuff, <laughs> yeah. and like, I mean, it's it's wild. Uh, like my first kind of entry into that whole thing, I went to the Overland Expo uh, West in Flagstaff, Arizona, a few years back, and looking at all these rigs that people have built up, it's unreal what they've done to them, and like what you can do, and so just being able to dip our toes in with the van this year is, uh, is going to be pretty fun. Yeah, no, I think that'll definitely be cool. So now I kind of want to transition a little bit, if you don't mind into yeah. hunting and, yep. uh, you do a lot of hunts in a year and yes. I'm just kind of curious, is there like a rhyme or reason, or, I mean, do you have an application strategy or is it just like, Hey, these guys are hunting over here. I'm going to go, you know, hang out with them, shoot some photos, hunt, or, I mean, how, how do you plan all that out? So I, uh, I, I don't get too caught up in like the points game or like the application strategy because the longer, the more time that goes on, the more I realize that there are unbelievable over the counter hunts all over the country. I mean, there's more good hunts that you could do in a year than way more than time allows or in a lifetime really. Um, and so once you start to kind of figure out that that exists, you stop worrying about like, oh, I hope I draw this, you know, trophy hunting unit because it turns out if you work your ass off, you can find trophy animals or not, you know, like it depends on what your focus is. Uh, you can find really cool experiences pretty much anywhere you go. Um, so the way that I run my year is I kind of take it month by month or, you know, um, like in the fall, August, I start chasing antelope. And I usually don't do a lot of that, but it's say five to seven days of antelope hunting, kind of freshen up the skills again on the right. spot and stock thing and <laughs> dust the, dust the bow off and dust the legs off. And, and then September is typically hundred percent elk from September 1st till the end of September. Uh, this year actually going to go up on a moose hunt instead of elk hunting, um, which is a decent trade off. And then, uh, October has always been my mule deer month. Uh, most people don't think about mule deer hunting in October. Uh, you know, they usually typically wait for the rut, um, in November, but my November is so filled with whitetail hunts that <laughs> I put my focus and everything on in, in October and, uh, you know, in hunting in Western, uh, states like, you know, Eastern Montana or Western Nebraska or whatever for mule deer, it's such open country that as long as you kind of know what you're looking for, you can kind of start to pick apart and find animals that um, maybe other people might not find. And so, yeah, October is my mule deer month, and then November is my whitetail month, and then December is ducks. Um, and then spring, you know, April and May is just full-on turkey hunting. No ice fishing out there? Uh, you know, I don't do much ice fishing. I, uh, I don't have time. <laughs> understandable plus it's trade show season right so you got yeah a lot going yeah. on there yeah yep. this year was great i basically skipped all trade shows except for pheasant fest i decided that i didn't want to spend money going to just walk around and see everybody and um it was a really nice to take a year off i um obviously missed catching up with a few buddies but 
it was well worth the extra sleep and <laughs> money money in the bank account. <laughs> right, right. So I saw that deer you shot last year, and that was yep. a pretty nice whitetail. Yep. So I'm kind of curious. I mean, do you get out and do you actually do a lot of scouting, or is it e-scouting, or you just kind of depending on where you're going, you're hunting with some buddies that kind of put you in the right direction, or what's the? Yeah, yeah. It really depends on where I'm going. Um, the ended up shooting two whitetails last year. The first one I killed was early November, November fourth, and uh, that re- that area um, I've been hunting for the. This was the fourth year that I've been hunting in that area. And I have probably spent, I don't know, 500 hours in e-scouting and then another thousand hours of like putting boots on the ground over the last few years. Like just, I mean, it doesn't matter all spring and whenever I'm around in the summer and what, I mean, I just, I cover the ground and like, I'm always, for some reason, I'm always thinking about that area. So that one, um, I've got some spots now that I, you know, typically know I'm going to run into a deer or two. Uh, the second deer that I killed, I think the one that you're talking about is the one I killed off the ground this year. And that one, it was a completely new area. And so that one came down to like only e-scouting. I had never been in that spot before. Um, had never even, yeah, had never been in that whole area of the state. So it was a shot in the dark, but you know, you just, as you, you know, learn about where deer typically spend time. Uh, it, you kind of like cross reference that with the map and where you found sign before and be like, well, they should, you know, there should be something in here. And so, yeah, that deer I killed, I found that spot on the map. Uh, I think I probably like typically what I'll do is I'll pick like a, say 30 by 30 mile square, and I will look at every public land spot that exists in that square and stuff that looks like kind of interesting. I'll put a certain pin on it. And then when I go back, I'll go back through all of those pins and then really kind of like be like, okay, this one is like top priority and I have different colors and stuff for which, uh, which one gets looked at first. And that one was one of my top priority places to go. And it was the, I think the th- Uh, it was only the second day of the hunt and, uh, went down to that spot and it was like a, almost an hour drive from camp. Uh, cause this year we were there and it was just a learning time. It was like, we're going to hunt it. All of us were going to hunt a different spot every single hunt and just to like basically gather Intel. Right. And, uh, went into that spot and immediately ran into sign and was picking my way through a patch of timber with the heads up decoy on there, just in case I ran into a deer and, um, spotted a one buck and started grunting at him and he was coming and I made a shift to get into the shade like by a little bush and um like and then heard something behind me and ended up being the buck that I shot was coming in from the other direction and I had to spin around with the decoy on and he basically came in to try to kill me and I shot him at 15 yards <laughs> so <laughs> that's awesome <clears throat> but is that the first one you've ever like first whitetail you've killed from the ground then uh, it's the second one. Yep. yep. And both, and both I've, I've killed using a heads up decoy. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah. I've always wondered how those, uh, I don't remember what the name of them are, but the ones that go on your bow that, mm-hmm. you know, you can shoot through. I've always yep. wondered how good those actually work. I always thought that was cool. Cause I've had some same similar experiences last year. Well, you know, I guess it would have been the year before last year popping up over a ridge, getting out of my canoe. And mm-hmm. it was one of those things that 
I knew there was a bunch of sign in the area. There was no way to get there. Finally, when I got there, I pop up and two does run past me. I go back to the, tr- the, the canoe to get my bow. And all of a sudden I hear something else crashing. I get up and it's a little forky. And I, so I mm-hmm. put the decoy up in front of me and I'm holding it and it's flopping around. So it, I don't know how it didn't <laughs> freak out, but he's standing there and he's stomping his hoof at it, you know, and mm-hmm. he's lowering his head, challenging me. And that yep. was just amazing. I mean, I, I ended up being probably eight yards away from him. It was just yep. cool. <laughs> yeah. I think the coolest thing about those decoys is, so even if a deer doesn't like come in to try to attack you or whatever, it can be used in spot and stock situations where say you're closing the gap and you can only get to 50 yards and then you've got to break cover. Well, a lot of times if you break cover and you don't have anything for them to focus on, like they blow out of there. But if you can sneak out from behind a ridge or, you know, behind a bush or whatever with that decoy on there, they'll, they'll spend enough time looking at it, like where you can have time to either range or maybe you've already ranged and you have enough time to draw back and settle in and shoot. Um, it just, it's a good distraction. And if, if any of you listening haven't used a heads up decoy, I strongly encourage it. Just call Garrett Rowe over there. He's a super good guy. Um, and tell him I sent you. <laughs> and, uh, like I, I am a, I am a believer. I mean, that was almost my best year and it was the coolest experience I've ever had, you know, in the white tailwoods. Was that an archery deer or was it a, a shotgun tag? No nope, archery deer. Archery deer. Yeah, that's really yep. cool. I've never shot yep. one on the ground with a bow. That's something. Yeah, I definitely want to do at some point. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you got any plans for turkey hunting this year? I do. Yeah, um, trying to solidify plans. I might be going to Texas to do a Rio hunt, and then um, I'm doing a Cabela's photo shoot on turkey hunt in Kansas. And then I'll probably try to stick around for a day or two and, and chase my own bird. Kansas just went to a one bird season. And so, um, you know, I think in a few days I could probably knock one down. Um, but then I'll probably hunt Nebraska and then trying to organize a trip with Onyx maps out in Montana. And, uh, I'll probably hunt Minnesota, Wisconsin, wherever else I can, you know, right. as long as, as long as I have time. Yeah. <laughs> You plan on doing yep. any more with the hunting public boys over there? I hope so. Yeah, I I hope so. We uh, we had talked about doing something in Montana together, but it just all depends on timing. So yeah, you so know, I got a question yeah. for you. There's a picture of Shane Simpson telling a story, and mm-hmm. I asked Shane about the picture, and I I didn't even notice you in the background, but the face you were making. He said he goes, <laughs> I don't. He said I don't know what the heck I was saying or telling, but apparently Sam didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I saw that. I saw that photo posted. I, and, uh, yeah, no, I, who knows why I had that, that face going forever. I was just, you know, it was, I was probably just tired, you know, had been turkey hunting for a few days and was probably just wore out. Yeah. No, I figured I'd just ask you. I figured it was nothing, <laughs> but he, it was funny. No, the no, way no. Shane no. told it. Yeah. No, Shane's a, Shane's a good guy. Interesting <laughs> character for sure. And man, there's uh, not many people better than him in the turkey woods. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. So, um, I kind of want to know, do you, uh, do you, do you plan on, let me, let me rephrase that. So other than the conservation thing or the public land thing that's going on right now, is there anything else that you're kind of trying to focus on or, uh, trying to bring to light? Sure. Um, 
I mean, not really. I mean, that's been such a such a high focus. And then even, you know, even if uh, the government decides to pass a public lands bill, basically protecting, you know, national forests and BLM for in perpetuity, um, there's always going to be something to to raise money for. And and uh, you know, there's conservation like. I think the next thing is probably going to be addressing like the lack of hunter numbers and figuring out ways, you know, creative ways to raise more money for, you know, to pay for all of the th- managing uh, lands and animals. Um, yeah, that's that. I mean, if uh, if the public land and and uh, conservation side of things dies down, I'd say that, you know, focusing on the three R's is uh, going to be the next thing. And really, like, you know, it was cool. Uh, Randy Newberg always throws that or hosts that deer camp down in Arizona. And we had some really cool conversations, the whole group of us, about hunter numbers and and kind of what that looks like. And, and uh, be, you know, just being able to hang around with a group of guys to have those bigger conversations was a cool experience. Um, and I think the really the focus needs to be on a lot of times agencies put a lot of effort into R1 and R3. So, um, they, uh, basically, um, they don't focus as much on retention as they do on reactivation. And, uh, now I'm drawing a complete bank blank. Um, so I, I think that's also very important, you know, the recruitment aspect of it. Anytime that I'm talking to somebody that kind of seems like their interest is peaked, I will mm-hmm. always extend an invite. I may not be taking them deer hunting or taking them to my favorite sure. spots, but you know, it's one of those things that I will always reach out to them. And I think it's yep. super important because you can always take them, you know, dove hunting or doing something yep. where it doesn't matter. Take them to a public spot where there's a bunch of fields. Yeah. And that's yeah, huge. And yeah, no, it really is. And I think all of us need to be taking more people. Um, right now this year, like basically every year in hunter's education, there's it's like 630,000 new hunters and the majority, like there's a huge chunk of that that stops hunting within five years. And so we think the next step is to figure out how do we keep those people involved, uh, interested, you know, for beyond five years, because if we can keep those 600,000 people a year, we don't have a hunting problem anymore or we don't have a money problem. Um, so I think that's probably the next step. Uh, yeah, I think I think a, a lot of that has to deal with the fact that, I mean, think about how hard it is, you know, and if you don't have a place to mm-hmm. hunt or somebody else that's a mentor, say you're going out to a public land piece, I didn't kill my first deer on private without a mentor or anybody. It was just, you know, me and a couple of buddies that decided we were going to start bow hunting. And I think mm-hmm. I think it was like four or five years before I ever killed my first deer with a bow. And it's sure. one of those things that I could see how someone would very easily get discouraged and not be able to, you know, just they can't see why they're buying a tag every year and just coming up short. And, mm-hmm. and that could be frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean that, I think that stems a lot from more of a cultural issue than, than a, uh, like a discouragement issue, because there are a lot of things that we can now do that are entertaining. They're, you know, they're fun to do and they're easy to do and they're, and they're affordable. Um, like the, uh, like having to really work hard to attain something has kind of been a back priority for like our culture as a whole, like the instant gratification, um, I think is probably the biggest problem in regards to hunter numbers, because like you said, it's easily discouraging if you don't shoot something every time you go out. Well, yeah. Uh, (laughs) 
<clears throat> and it's yeah. like you see people that go, you know, especially social media. That's I think that's one of the evils of it. And especially if somebody, you know, it's their first year or something. And I see it all the time. You know, people start shaming them. Well, why'd you shoot that? Why didn't you give them another year? I don't care what it is. If it makes exactly. you happy, just do it. Just mm-hmm. do it. Because it's one of those things that people may be holding out. And I mean, sometimes I hold out, but it's mostly just for my own personal reasons. You know, like sure. I had a deer that was a nice buck coming this year on me. And he came in and I patterned him. It was the same spot as last year. And it was one of those things where he came in just on a string to the point to where I thought, man, if he does this again next year, it's going to be awesome. So I gave him a chance. Mm -hmm. My heart wasn't pounding out of my chest. I was calm. Now, he could have been a spike buck. And if my heart was pounding out of my chest, he Mm -hmm. would have probably went down. So (laughs) it's just one of those things, especially, and that's like the out-of-state thing. I mean, if a lot of people get into that, as long as it's legal, I'm taking it. I don't care. I right. don't care what other oh, people say. For sure. And yep. then you got all these people that, you know, posting things on social media that are hunting, you know, $20,000 bulls that are, you know, 400 plus inch and they're posting it and you think you got to compete with that. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just when you start to try to compare yourself to that stuff, it's just, it takes all the fun out of it. So yeah, I think you're exactly right. It's just, you got to go do it for you and that's it. Um, yeah, like whatever makes you excited. That's what you need to go do. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully this year, my plan is because I, I haven't really duck hunted a whole lot. And it's kind of mm-hmm. crazy that, you know, um, but normally I'm whitetail hunting, right? So it's one of those things. And if you're chasing that big buck, hopefully tag out early on a nice one. Yep. Get my other few that I want to fill the freezer with, and then it's going to be duck hunt. And that'll be pretty exciting this year. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. yeah. No, I love, uh, I love the the transition that I get to do every year with, you know, you chase the Western big game and then kind of go into whitetails, which is certainly a little more relaxing than Western hunting where you're covering miles and spot and stocking or whatever, like to go back and, uh, either spend time in a tree stand or a blind or, a you know, even hunting from the ground is just a little bit slower game. And then, uh, transitioning to waterfall where it's a way more social event is just, it's really nice to, to do that. <laughs> it's like, it's like a break from the rest of it. I mean, it's still a whole pile of work, but it's, you're not, you know, worried about the wind, you know, as much as you are in, you know, chasing big game and you can talk and you can drink coffee and you can, you know, do all the things and hang out with your buddies and then call birds in and and shoot. Um, yeah, I think this year we're going to try to organize like a, a later season pheasant hunt, um, in South Dakota as, as just a way to like kind of put a period on the season and just, you know, have a big camp with the bus and the van and whoever else wants to come and, and, uh, chase pheasants and just go walk around and make it a big social thing instead of just, you know, having it always be so solo. Yeah, no, that's probably pretty good for the reactivation slash retention, right? I mean, stuff Mm -hmm. like that. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. So Sam, that's pretty much all the questions I got, uh, for you. I appreciate you coming on. Um, you want to tell people, I'm sure people probably already know where to find you or, but, uh, you go ahead and tell them. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks for having me on. And if anybody else wants to follow along with what I'm up to and what we're up to is either my personal handle on Instagram is just at Sam Soholt, um, or YouTube Sam Soholt, um, or our, um, company is at public land tees. Okay. I appreciate it. And thank you for coming on, Sam. Thanks for talking. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks again.
Thank you for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. If you like this episode, please subscribe on whatever platform it is that you're listening to. Also, you can find us on Instagram at Publicly Challenged, and you can also find us at Publicly Challenged Podcast or publiclychallenged.com. So please reach out to us with any questions, comments, concerns, or maybe you'd even like to be on the show. And once again, thank you so much for listening. Miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. You're listening to the Waypoint Podcast Network, brought to you in part by HuntStand, the number one hunting and land management app.